page 150 of Darkness Out of Time. The second descent happens at noon when our lives appear to be going well. We seem to be doing things properly. We are not ignorant or unconscious, yet things still fall apart. And so there are two common responses to this fall, each of which become an obstacle in itself. One is indignation, the thought that whatever pains are happening to us shouldn't be happening. And the other is despair, the thought <clears throat> that, that this is a special fate reserved only for us. Both these reactions come from the assumption that the second descent is somehow out of time and sequence. It's unexpectedness undermines two of our most loved and durable notions, that suffering has meaning and that we can find a path beyond it through our virtue, through our virtue and skill. Yeah, what I don't understand is the second, where does it say that? The assumption of the second descent, which what's the second descent? The indignation, no, despair, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Emily, I think it's you. Um, the second descent may stem from an outer blow or from an inner failure of confidence. Cancer appears, houses burn down, the artist runs dry, the businesswoman picks the wrong stock. The success and delight we have been basking in end abruptly. We cannot explain it to ourselves. Some pains are not deserved. We have begun to think that we were on a journey designed by an engineer, but this new element of caprice and unpredictability could only be the work of a poet whose rhymes we cannot yet make out and whose images do not seem to progress to one another. One woman's description of childbirth gives us a metaphor for the difficulty of the second descent. I remember in the last phase of childbirth, I felt that I gave everything I have to give, completely expending my fund of concentration, strength, and energy. My daughter was born and I lay back exhausted to bask in the glow. No one had told me that I still had to give birth to the placenta. It seemed like a cruel joke. The nurse began pressing down on my belly and for a moment I hated her. But then she said to me, this is always the hardest part of my job. I had thought the pain was over and I had my great reward. So the second wave felt unbearable. Further surrender is required and we earn it with further suffering. The way Job learned that it was not his place to talk of reasons to God. John Keats thought that there was an ongoing necessity to learn through suffering. He wrote, do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school <coughs> and intelligence and make it a soul, a place where the heart must feel and suffer in a thousand diverse ways. Only when we throw our hands up do we feel free of fate. If we do not grasp and cling, there is nothing to fear. 
nothing to take from us, nothing we need. In the same way, we might say that Job, with his final inner surrender, became at least, at last, free <coughs> of God. The old Chinese had an appreciation, even a fondness, for the caprice of the inner work. One of their images is still given to meditators sometime after they have had a deep experience. It is this. A clearly enlightened person falls into a well. That's a nice one. I don't, I don't get that one. Oh, anyone have an idea about that? Really, you know, Emily, Emily Dickinson had this line in a poem, success is kind of sweetest to those who ne'er succeed or never succeed. It's the same thing, I think, that, um, When you finally get it, then there's something, you know, like you're kind of at the end of the road in a sense, or you're, you're at the beginning. There's another thing about you stepping off a hundredth pole and, and uh, that's just the beginning. But I, I thought there was no, no, basically no getting it. Like, you know what? You know how you said once you get it, I say, I, I thought there was no getting it. Like there's no end. Yeah, no end that, the world. that's that's why falling you fall into the well. It's not. It's it's like the 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 uh, the path, but you get to the end of the path and you kind of hit your nose on a stone or something. Okay. So it's almost is it like the journey that you thought was over is now just beginning. Yeah. How about about the babe the woman. She thought it was over giving birth to the baby, but then there's still the placenta. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes more sense. I think that's why he told that story. So this is to, to uh, you know, you kind of, when you, well, I know a good, a, a good example. My, I, my painting teacher, when he was very young, won a bunch of awards and his teacher said to him remember Wagner, your paintings can never be any bigger than you are <laughs> which is kind of a you know like your head gets swelled and i think that's that's it and then you have to deal with that does that make sense yeah yeah it kind of let your e let his ego get in the way. Yeah. The word clearly is fun funny, isn't it? Yeah. I mean it's almost like if you're clearly enlightened, you wouldn't be enlightened. <laughs> what did what did someone say the other day about understanding? Oh, I think it was in morning Zazen after we sat, someone was talking about how they um, weren't understanding anything. And I said something like, that's understanding. To understand that you're not understanding. So I think it's a similar thing. The clearly enlightened person understands 
which is a kind of a death trap. Okay, Malin, public mortification. In these public forms, mortification usually means a sudden plunge from the heights. In the English-speaking world, the great terrible example of mortification is King Lear. In his age, he decided to give his kingdom away and devised a test that chose precisely the wrong people to give it to. His two daughters, who were vicious flatterers, flatterers triumphed over his It's tri triumphed, triumphed. Triumphed. Like one over, one, yeah. Go on. Over his sincere and truthful uh, youngest daughter. Lear lost his wits, his children, his kingdom, and his life. Even the weather was harsh upon his noble, feeble old head. <laughs> there's, a, there's always a second descent for the illustrious. The one who had been yesterday adored is today derided. People he hardly knew and to whom his only connection had been to perform mild favors, appear in print to declare that he was always, he has always mistreated them. Oscar Wilde stood waiting on the railway platform as he began, I mean, as he was being taken to prison. He stood in handcuffs before the gaze of those who had admired him and who now with no significant change and his behavior despise him. Tragedy and comedy are both made from this kind of plummet. U.S. presidents often seem to suffer in such a way. Because of his fatal passion for Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson saw his great record on civil rights obliterated and did not seek a second term. His death from a heart attack seemed to be, further, be a further withdrawal from the stings of public life. Richard Nixon's paranoia erased his achievements with China. Ronald Reagan, affable and out of touch, standard, standard bearer for traditional values, saw his child write a book attacking his ability as a father. Success is, a dangerous, is as dangerous as, as failure, as a Tao Ching says. The strategies by which he came to success rarely helped to maintain oops, maintain and mortification teaches us that the disciplines of the inner life must continue whether we are at the heights or in the depths now that is that's deep yeah because that happens that happens to a lot of people that's on top it's like you know, one minute they're loved and then the next they're hated. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that um, was difficult to come to terms with um, in thinking about the maintaining a 
discipline of meditation is, oh yeah, I've got to continue whether I'm at the heights or in the depths. (laughs) (laughs) The work is never ending. Uh, Fleeing the body. The great public dramas of mortification are enacted within us when we make in the inner life the same mistakes the famous make in their outer sphere. The spirit tries to find its way into the world without regard for any other factors, disregarding precisely the small temporary physical gestures that make life amiable. Such hubris leads to the inevitable explosion of whatever has been excluded. Folktale holds this knowledge too. In the story of Sleeping Beauty, the king and queen neglect to invite a fairy to their daughter's name feast. This fairy puts a curse on the infant so that later she pricks her finger on a spindle and falls into a continuous sleep. What is refused returns. In the flight toward the spirit, the body can be lost as a source of wisdom. Often a part of the path, as we have seen, involves a deliberate investigation into the body's transient fragility. But any revulsion against the body is not useful in the long term. Often women are asked to carry and bear the blame for what the culture has not come to terms with the pleasure, the untidy fascination of having a body, the fathoms and attitudes of feeling. (coughs) One executive of a noble and even adventurous Western temple banned the sale in postcard form of paintings of Buddhist wisdom figures because they had naked breasts. Spirit does not quite except the body. When it is too dominant, the position of the feminine declines in status. Tolstoy, eager for saintliness, leaves his wife somewhere at the nadar of (coughs) this impulse is the world of the fanatics, where women are dragged out of cars and beaten for the crime of showing their arms. Children may suffer too, since they are insufficiently angular for these rigorous rigors of the spirit. The care of children demands immersion in the moment and can be a form of meditation or prayer, as as can cooking, gardening, or tending the sick. Spirit has a theory of liking children, but a practice of making the condition of their lives difficult. Resources and time are not allocated. Messes and noise are not allowed. In the realm of government, senators often like to praise Christian family values while voting to cut education funding. You know, all this would be written differently if Trump was the example, wouldn't it? You know, a lot of things we're reading, like about the thing about Reagan and Lyndon Johnson, Trump would have been in that paragraph, wouldn't he? I, I believe so. Yeah. 
And also abortion would have been here mentioned, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of dated by the fact that they're not using those metaphors. I agree with that. It is interesting how he goes from literature to politics to history and so on. Yeah, he just pulls all this stuff out. It just, I, I love it so much. I, I would have hated to miss tonight, you know, because it's just like, uh, it's so unusual the way he writes. Go on, Cody. Uh, oh, yeah, I was, I was going to say, uh, because, I mean, those are the areas where, like, fall from grace is, is just, is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's evident, you know, it's, it's, it's there. And that's, and that's, I guess that's kind of when he, when he talks about the, uh, what was the second, um, I, I can't remember the word, but like. Oh, despair, despair, you yeah, mean? Yeah, despair. I mean, politics has a lot of that, you know, involved with it. I'll go read. Spirit is wonderful with last things, death and first things, the mystery from which we came. But we humans are very interested in all that happens in between. In the meanwhile, of a a walk on the beach, reading a a novel by the fire, throwing a stick for a dog, chopping garlic of the unimportant moments that give life its true flavor and only justification. We all have unlived. We all have an unlived side that calls siren-like to us. Clergy lust and criminals dream of being hum- hum- humble and pure. Watching the way spirits spirit seems to soar and crash, I wonder if even a great force like spirit may not also long for its opposite. Harbor a harbor a secret interest in plummeting, a curiosity about the earth and the body. As our inner, inner life deepens, we don't really want to be perfect, either real beings. Ethereal, ple- right? Ethereal, ethereal beings beyond pleasure and pain. That sounds like the hell of Virgil. The soaring of spirit is a fine thing. The error comes if we cling to spirit when it is time to turn down toward earthly realms. The pain of skinning our knuckles on a cold morning, the pleasure of loving and loathing. Isis and Osiris, the soul works with mortification. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in its head. Shakespeare, as you like it. One ancient Mediterranean story that includes both the first descent and the second is that of Isis and Osiris. Isis is married to Osiris, whose brother Set kills him. This death is the first descent in which the force that pitches us into night 
is unexpected, yet already intimate with us, the brother, our other self. Set locks Osiris in a casket, which the tide carries to the base of a tamarisk tree on the Phoenician shore. The tree enfolds the coffer, and when it is later, later cut down to make a pillar, gives off such fragrance that Isis is led to it. This fragrance seems to be the same fragrance that appears in tales popular in Tibet and China of meditation masters whose corpses give off perfume and light. Something is changed in the darkness. Something is revealed as precious through all the transformations that life takes us through. In The Tempest, Shakespeare describes it like this. <coughs> Full fathom five, thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Gathering the pieces of the fra fragrant body. It's a fragrant. Fragrant, thank you. Yeah. Isis recovers the casket and this is the culmination of the first descent and the ascent to awakening which follows. The lost treasure is found again. Time is suspended, suspended. Betrayal and anguish have been transformed into perfume. So far so good, but set the shadow, shadowy force in us all is not integrated completely by transcendence and sweet odors. The new spiritual experience will be tested in just the same fashion. The new celebrity finds that her fame has given her quite a different set of problems. And in some sense has made life more frantic and impossible. Set comes upon the body again, and this time does a more thorough job, dismembering his brother and scattering the pieces about the Nile Delta. When we have achieved a certain level of awareness, we may feel our stings and griefs more accurately, acutely, I'm sorry, having lost the thick skin of former ignorance. So Set brings about a second fragmentation of consciousness, a second death, a second descent. What happens next shows the way ISIS works with the second descent. You're muted, Emily. Oh, thanks. The queen becomes ever more resourceful in the face of disaster. She wanders about collecting the pieces, 
and wherever she finds a fragment, she builds a shrine. Each fragment is an object of reverence. Each moment, even of the night, is sacred. Isis reassembles the corpse of her lover, except for one crucial piece, the penis, which has been eaten by a crab or a fish. Undeterred, she has one carved, and after Osiris is thus restored, and before he leaves once more to rule the underworld, entering entirely the world of the spirit, she conceives by him the child Horus. The second integration then is fertile. The experience of coming apart and being all in pieces, and then the experience of being gathered mysteriously back into life. These are characteristic moments of the inner journey. The journey ends with a child and so begins all over again. The queen's act of gathering is the reverie of lovers and mothers. Where is my child now, murmurs the mother to herself. Is she happy? Is she getting enough to eat? Like Isis, whose blue cape reappears about the shoulders of Mary, the next queen of heaven, we muse and dream, the soul wanders and wonders, finding the pieces to make a human life, knitting up the bits of consciousness that have been scattered into the world. During the process of mortification, the soul remembers and recounts old legends, old goons, old graces, and new possibilities, and so gathers them and the breath of perfume that they carry. Otello wins Desdemona by telling his sufferings. She, lo she loved, how, how do you say that? Loved. loved. Just mm -hmm. loved, yeah. Thank you. She loved. You know, the apostrophe takes the place of an E. Mm. She loved me for the daughters I had passed, and I loved her for she did pity them. This only is the witchcraft I have asked. Used. Used. Thank you. Like the ancient mariner, we are under compulsion to tell again and again the heroism of our youth, the pains of childhood, the stories of love and war. These are the shrines that Isis builds over the scattered pieces. In the same way, beloved names are sprayed on cement embankments under, freeway, under the freeways in graffiti, elaborate and enraged. Colors bright with desire and misunderstanding. Falling in love is not made, has not made those painters more happy or more whole, but it has given them the incompleteness that begins a life. If something is broken, soul wants to sing about it and comfort it and mend it. The mother goes to the cemetery on the dead, child, on the dead child's birthday and tells to the grass the story of the year on earth as if the child had not died, but were away traveling. Purgatory, again. 
The second descent into darkness bears a formal resemblance to the first. It too can be a shocking plunge in which our bearings are lost. First, we are cast down without regard for our bright achievements or attentions. Next, through surrender and compassion, we are delivered to transverse, to traverse purgatory. The initial anxiety, the difficulty, the feelings of loss and the anguish of walking the night road can be very similar, but there is a difference. We notice that the second darkness is more dynamic and less dense. The first darkness is immobile, fixed, insoluble. In its grip, we wait helplessly, putrefying, it seems, in our coffin, disintegrating into mere matter. We have to trust not in our effort, but in the conscious forces of the world, in the chemistry of ourselves, laboring to maintain us. Until the spirit shifts us, we cannot stir. The arrival of the spirit, this wind, seems to have nothing to do with us, yet it marks the dawning of awareness. The image is appropriate to the first descent, the painful birth, are those of burden and some, where the troops of the 1914 18 were slugged through the moth and shell craters. Men shored up the floorboards, floorboards in the trenches with frozen corpses and for the rest of their lives cut out the mustard. Cough, it's coughed. Coughed. Yeah. And the rest of their lives coughed out the mustard gas. They had breath. Breathed. Breathe. 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 Yeah, the past of breath. Breathed in those years. They had no choice. They were in hell. I do not know that reference, Berdeman. Some. That you? was uh, World War One, I, I think. Mm. Yeah. Uh, is France. Okay. And. And unfortunately, they used uh, mustard gas to, mm. uh, like a biological weapon. Mm. That's uh, what so, so they'd have to like pull mass gas masks over their faces while they were fighting. You've probably seen pictures of that with the mask, yeah. the big mm. mask. Yeah, thank you, Ma. There's an excellent poem about that, uh, which I will put in the chat. Do you want to share it? Uh, it's called Dulce et Decorum Est. Uh, I'll make you um, co-host. No, no, I, I don't know the, I don't have the poem, but I'll put the title in the chat. Okay. Yeah. In the second darkness, we know again the sharpness of the inferno. Yet at this time, we are not rudderless. And rudderlessness is, after all, the chief of hell's pains. Grief and sorrow are felt perhaps even more intensely. 
since we come to them now with more awareness. But when hell has motion, its anguish will not endure. Fragments of light are scattered around like clues. So this second darkness belongs those images in which infernal realm has its own Buddha appearing after the custom of the land. A little red creature with horns and a diabolic grin, but nevertheless a true Buddha entering the realm to save the beings in it. And because this hell does not last forever, it gathers to itself an atmosphere of modesty and repentance. Here repentance is not an abject surrender, but a joyful elevation of our mood. Life's directions turns to the source, even during sorrow. Carrying stones. Repentance begs for burdens. Michel de Montagne. It is wisdom to find the tasks that are right for us at each moment of our journey. They may not be the tasks we hoped we should have, yet we simply must simply bear them. In Dante's Purgatorio, the souls carry great stones around the mountain path and Dante, accompanying them, bends over in sympathy, but they hoist their loads joyfully, are glad of burdens and tasks because burdens and tasks will transform them. In hell, no one learns. Even the most magnificent imp just repeats himself. At the bottom of Dante's Inferno, the greatest demon of all is frozen in ice. In purgatory though, there is movement, even if slow, and because there is movement, the stars are visible. There is growth. The purpose of carrying stones is to slow down so that we may become present to our lives, so that we can enjoy carrying stones. The stones on our backs educate us. <coughs> through the dumb force of matter, the weight, the rough edges scoring our skin, the sweat running into our eyes, all these are the taste of life, the actual flavor of the Bodhisattva path. We carry the stones because we want to exist in the world. One man's stone was AIDS. He had been treating it by weekly consultations with Chinese herbalists and by living a full life. The image he had was that of a liner going down, but slowly on an even keel while the music played. At the time, no treatment, of, no treatment offered more than a brief, desperate prolongation of life, and he had seen friends die in misery, seen many funerals, many tears. He had always been angry about the disease and had talked about, about suicide, sworn that he couldn't die in restraints, 
restraints with his mind gone. It became clear though, through the course of his illness, that his fear was not just about death. It was something he always had lived with. He had grown up with a sense of imminent doom. His father had worked for, at the Pentagon for Strategic Air Command, and a red phone had been placed in the bedroom for nuclear alerts. When there was an alert, his father would take off on the command bomber in case Washington, including his family, were destroyed. But even that was not the whole explanation. I have discovered I have the same feeling of terror and wrongdoing when I'm facing death and when the wallpaper comes off in my house. I've got hold of the live wire of my fear about life and I just have to keep holding on to it. In some ways, it's harder ha than having AIDS, but I can do it. I just have to complete this process. I don't know what's the right way to go about healing my body, but I know I can do something about this sense that I have, that I've never been at home in the world. I don't know that I have enough time to heal my body, but I have enough time to heal my fear. Carrying our stones makes everything alive around us. The hills, the trees, and the passerby in the street. Such labor keeps us out of hell. When his dying time came, this man was no longer angry and had no thought of suicide. That night, he drifted in and out of waking all night, his companion by his side. He waited till the stars began to fade at dawn, and then he went. A little later, his friends came and gossiped and chanted for him in the hospital room as his body gradually grew cold. He had learned to be happy, carrying his stone. Dying was putting it down. The spiral stare. We seem alternatively to transcend the human condition and to be utterly subject to it. The, the alteration is the human condition as it is the natural alter, alternation of moments of spirit and soul. That conversation constitutes our human life. Our development sometimes seems so slow as to require geological metaphors, geological me metaphors, the breakup of Gondwana, the heaving and sliding of continents, the development of cyanobacteria to make oxygen, the migration of plants into land, and then of the animals that follow that. It is as if we, knew personally these majestic stages in which great pauses are punctuated by sudden flurries of discovery and understanding. 
We carry in us so much that folds, holds us back. And yet these are the very things that made us, the gill pouches in the mammalian embryo, the skeleton not quite adapted to biped, bipedalism, the dark uncertain memories from childhood. We begin to see that, that there are rhythms and rhymes in the journey. The second darkness matches the first in a certain fashion and in another fashion is unlike it. Later, there will be other darknesses in which the rhythm, the rhyme, I'm sorry, will again form. It is this observation that leads to the image of the interior journey as a spiral stair. We come again over the same landings where the same issues appear before us. Each time there is danger, a confrontation with the night. Yet each time there is also improved equanimity, a greater clarity, a briefer descent. Purgatory, like hell and heaven, is a moment we come to, time after time, on a particular turning of the stair. A Buddhist teacher put it like this. I began to realize that my happiness did not depend on being happy. <laughs> I am always a particular stage on the stairs and my happiness consists of greeting my stage, even when it is painful, along with the knowledge that time turns all wheels and the next stage is always approaching. We move like Isis over the delta of the inner life. The scattered pieces are collected and lost and collected again. Let's see how much there is to this. I wanted to ask something. Sure. Do, do you know of um, some writing or text or something where Buddha talks about this second descent or something like that in his own experience? No, I'll think about it, but no, not offhand. Um, it seems John Tarrant is more poetic than the Buddha. The Buddha was uh, kind of nuts and bolts. Let's do this to get rid of suffering. So. It just, he wasn't a poet in that sense, so he had a great ability at rhetoric, you know, argument, but not in poetry. Well, maybe, I'll think about it. That's a good question. Anyone else have ideas on this? Uh, 
No, that's a good thing to research. Thanks for the question. Thank you. Now I have something to think about driving <laughs> back to Austin. Excellent. How many hours? Well, tomorrow we're going to Tulsa and it's seven hours and 35 minutes. And then it's about another eight hours from Tulsa to Austin. Wow. So you're going to stop in Tulsa then? Yeah, we have a reservation for, for Good. Tulsa. Oh, that's where Larry Clark, the photographer, grew up. You know him. about you know about him, yeah. yeah Once it goes in, it never comes out. That's what he said, <laughs> talking about the needle. Yeah. He lived with a bunch of uh, heroin addicts and photographed them. Hmm. Hmm. So if you Google Larry Clark. I can't remember the name of the book that he did. Tulsa. Oh, Tulsa. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. I saw uh, early in the 60s, I, in a little, um, in Iowa, in a little gallery, I saw a show of this work. He came to Mexico City once. Oh. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he's an iconic. Yes. Yeah, photographer. Do you want to stop here and do our 10 minutes? Okay. So it's uh, 183. Let me. Um... Okay, let's let's um, do whatever we're going to do till eight eight oh seven. If you're everyone's in the same time zone, so we can do that. Eight oh seven. Beep. So this was my experience today. If you can see it. A little girl on a bike and the mother and grandmother. So I'll read it. My sweet father-in-law on his last lap bid us farewell. It was time to go home. We left the hospital to the parking lot. There was a mother and grandmother teaching a little girl dressed with knee and elbow guards to ride a new bike with streamers coming from the handlebars. At one point, she fell off completely, sprawled on the ground. Before long, she got back up on the bike to try again. Mm -hmm. Excellent. It was so nice to see that, you know, leave, leaving um, my father-in-law and then seeing life go on with this little girl and that succession, it was just so beautiful. Who else has something? So I kept thinking, as we read, I kept thinking about this little girl. I've been thinking about her all day. 
and, nice. and the, the connection between the it was exactly what we read wasn't it yeah kind of yeah the, the despair and then the the, the transformation the life, yeah and purgatory mm -hmm. i found uh, a piece of this text incredibly comforting um uh, the it didn't start of... that way did it no yeah um, I think uh, he wrote the purpose of carrying stones is to slow us down so that we that we may become present to our lives we carry the stones because we want to exist that was beautiful yeah, yeah. Um, today I think I was finding the stone too heavy to carry and I was thinking about the burden as like this unsurpassable monolith. And it's a very distinct probability that this monolith is actually a big pile of pebbles in my pockets. <laughs> and all I have to do is sort of let them go little by little. And I think of you, you know, having to tell parents that their kid is deaf. And, and um, at first it just seems, must seem impossible to them and so terrible. And, and then they find their way, right? And they, they, eventually they... they... Oh, it depends. Like uh, a lot of people approach the path in different ways. Some of them are disbelieving and some of them are quite accepting. Like what's next? You mean that quickly or mm -hmm. that's great. And there's like a lot of in between that. Yeah. Yeah. And are you, are you uh, often surprised? Like, can you kind of predict? No, before, you can't. Before? It's always a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. So you go slow. <laughs> Melan? Yeah, how's, I, how's your mom these days? She's a stable, but um, her surgery has not occurred yet. Um, so we're waiting. This is for her eyes? Mm-hmm. So I was, uh, this paragraph that we read, uh, in reference to the stone and this person with AIDS mm -hmm. that also talk, talks about um, the stone he has in life also made me uh, think, but kind of in a different way of what you said, Emily, I just wrote, uh, what is my purgatory stone? Should I find it now that I am still in this mundane world so I can pass to some other majestic stages and be free? The last three words, what were they? So that, so that I can pass? To some other majestic stages and be free. Or oh, stages, free. yeah. Yeah, it is kind of uh, 
there was another paragraph that I reread in these 10 minutes when he talks about mundane stuff and he says about cutting garlic and, you know, So it is kind of this opposition, dramatic opposition about the daily kind of pleasure experiences. And then this other, I don't know how to call them, um, this super important things that you have to identify to let go. Toward the end, yeah. The yeah, and I started thinking about sometimes you have a splinter or something, and it's overwhelming. You know, something really minor, but it's mm -hmm. not—it's not in accord with the importance of the thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. And also, at least for me, it—it it is not very simple to to know the stone, not in the way that Emily said, but uh, the one that you are carrying even in life as the paragraph said for this person that got aid, AIDS. I could, I would like to go deeper and look for it. For your, your stone? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought you I said. We, I don't know if we only have one stone. I think we have several stones. Yes. Yeah. I thought you said tone, T-O-N-E, which is fun too. <laughs> the stone is kind of a tone, <laughs> and you're trying to find your tone. <laughs> yeah, a better tone. <laughs> a better tone. Yeah. Cody. I didn't write anything. I was just, I, I didn't even know where to start, to be honest. It was a lot in a very small amount of time. Mm -hmm. He takes us through this, doesn't he? What an amazing man. I would really like to meet him. Excuse me. Is he alive? Oh, did we decide he wasn't alive? I think he's not. Really? Is, yeah, are, is, is someone Googling him? Uh, yeah. I'm looking him up. Right. Maybe he lives in Tulsa. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Googling him? I think he's still uh, alive. Oh, I'm Googling. And where does he live? John Tarrant. Where? Uh, He's still alive. He's in Australia. Oh. That's a good reason to go there. I don't think we have enough gas. <laughs> He's 73 years old. He's younger than my parents. Well, 
I'll see you all in Austin, in Austin Zoom, from Austin Zoom. Yeah. Have a safe trip. And Malin, um, my wife's going to be in the East Austin thing that you're in the, the same thing you are. Oh, nice. Uh, it's in a, it's three potters and they're going to be uh, showing their work in a Japanese restaurant. Oh, super nice. I'll meet her there. Yes. <laughs> I look forward to you coming. Okay. Have a good evening, everyone. Thank you for being, being, being here. Great to spend Monday night with you. You're welcome. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.